This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Hello and welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media podcast about all things in print. I am your host, Stuart in L.A., sliding back that airlock door so we can talk about aliens, kind of a favorite subject of mine right now. If you're a donor over at our sister podcast, Now Playing, you probably already heard Arnie, Brock, and myself discuss the 1979 Ridley Scott original, Alien, as well as its action-packed James Cameron-directed sequel, Aliens. I wanted to take advantage of Books and Nachos and explore a extended universe that uses those first two films as a jumping-off point to tell an alternative history for the main characters of Ripley, Newt, and Hicks. In 1988, Dark Horse Comics issued a six-series black-and-white comic that was a direct sequel to the Cameron movie and had Newt and Hicks having a re-encounter with the Xenomorph in outer space. It was phenomenally successful, and Dark Horse continued to create miniseries after that. I will be reviewing three of these miniseries. The initial one is what I'm covering here today. It has been collected and been retitled as Aliens Outbreak. I will also be covering Aliens Nightmare Alley and Alien Female War. These are the first three miniseries in an alternative Alien sequel. What does that mean for Alien 3, the actual theatrical movie that came four years after this first comic book series? It means we got a continuity problem, and I'll just go ahead and get that out of the way right now. If you are a fan of continuity and need for the comic book universe to be in sync with all of the movies, then you are going to need to read the novelization of this first comic book series or read the reprinting of this comic book series, because obviously in 1988, the comic book writers did not know what David Fincher would do with some of these characters. And without supporting the surprises of Alien 3, there are things that happen to Newt and Hicks that prevent them from having the adventures they do here in graphic novel form. So, how they got around that in future printings of the novel and the comic book are that they changed them entirely. It is no longer Newton Hicks, but entirely new characters that have been rechristened Billy and Wilkes. Kind of sounds the same, right? They kind of look the same. They both had adventures on a faraway planet with the aliens. This time it was some planet called Rim. Well, I think this is all very silly. I don't think you need to change the intent of the comic book writer simply because a future film director had a different idea for these characters. I am more than comfortable seeing this as an alternative sequel to the Cameron movie. And quite frankly, I think many people might, because I know that there is a lot of hostility, there's a lot of controversy surrounding how Fincher handled the property in Alien 3. If you're a donor of it now playing, I'll definitely discuss the movie over there. But for here now, books and nachos, let's stay focused on what was done here in print. So again, what I am reviewing is a comic book and a novelization of that comic book that was printed between 1988 and 1992. Aliens, the six-issue comic book series, later christened Aliens Outbreak, and the novel Earth Hive. You might be wondering, well, which one should I read, the book or the comic book? It really comes down to your own personal preference. I personally think that Aliens works best in a visual medium. 
that there's something so scary about the H.R. Giger design, it really works best when you're looking at it, and that there's nothing pros can do to equate the horror of looking at that creature. So I'm prone for the comic book, plus it's what I read first. The prose as written by Steve Perry is adequate. I don't think it's exceptional. It's not bad either. I think that there are details and flourishes. It tends to linger on moments that the comic book hurries through. So if you're someone that wants to retain maybe some more of the leisurely pace that was established in the movies, the book is a little bit more faithful. The comic book is fleet. It is epic in scope. It is very large and it jumps around in storylines. There are many characters here. It is not the story of one woman battling the alien, as the movies kind of established a formula. It is its own thing. And so the comic book will feel entirely different to you, not only because it moves quicker, but because they've made a surprise choice. Ripley is not in this first comic book series. Hicks and Newt, yes, they are here, and they are a part of a very large cast. But even they are not entirely the stars. There is no focal point for the series other than the alien at this point. And that is a surprise, i got to say. Ripley will return to the story later. I think we'll be discussing her in the weeks to come as we look at other miniseries. But it's a different thing to have supporting characters now take on more of the responsibility. And that the enemy, as it were, the alien, to be the real focal point. Now, the title Earth Hive implies that this story will take place on Earth and about the aliens invading our planet. I think that that was a logical choice. It's where I thought the third movie always would go. It was where the theatrical movie had planned to go for many, many years before Fincher settled on a different storyline entirely. But what may surprise you is how ambitious this comic book series is. Not only does it have an alien infestation on Earth, it actually dares to go back in outer space to a planet that is also overrun by the alien. And so we bounce back and forth between the galaxies and all these characters, and we're meeting new scientists and military brass on Earth as we're watching two fan favorites battle it out again in space. We're picking up ten years beyond the James Cameron film, and we're finding that life has not been entirely kind to our beloved Hicks and Newt. The events on LV-426 have been so traumatizing, they have not been able to find peace, even though they have found home. It's sort of an irony of the storyline that even though that they are safe back at home, I think they'd rather be back out in outer space battling. It's not dissimilar if you ever saw the movie Apocalypse Now. The character that Martin Sheen plays really is very similar to Hicks here. He is a soldier so scarred by war that all he can think about is more war. He wants another mission. He spends his time drunk, carousing with hookers, being insolent and insubordinate and violent, and the military doesn't know what to do with him. They want to give him something that will make him useful again. Hicks did not have his face reconstructed. That acid splash he got at the end of the Cameron movie, he still wears that scar, and it matches the scar on his brain. Likewise, Newt is a teenager now who is still dreaming of the alien queen, of the creatures that have robbed her of her biological family. And she has been abandoned by Ripley and Hicks and institutionalized in a mental institution. The doctors don't have the proclivity or the tools to help her deal with her alien trauma. They simply drug her with sedatives and put her in front of the TV. And she is left wanting and waiting for a rescue. The Weyland-Yutani Company, we've known for two films now, 
has always coveted the alien creature as a advancement in biological weaponry, that it has always had spies in the cast of the previous movies who are trying to acquire the creature so that they can put it into play as a war machine. Think about it. If you had an enemy, why fire bullets? Why put human civilians in danger when you can drop in a couple alien eggs and have those creatures completely wipe out your enemy? It makes perfect sense why Weyland yutani Company would want the alien as a weapon. But I can only presume that the nuclear blast that concluded the Cameron film wiped out any potential for them to collect it from this spaceship where it has been collected in two previous movies. That horseshoe-shaped, space-jockey-driven spaceship with all those eggs in it, it's not available to them anymore, and it's been ten years since they've had any lead on how to get more alien eggs. But they at last have had a breakthrough. The comic book series begins with a ghost ship drifting through space that scavengers find. The crew of it has been murdered, and there is an alien stalking around on board. These scavengers actually end up dead. Both ships are destroyed. But to the benefit of the company, before that happens, they transmit the coordinates from where this ghost ship has come from. So even though they don't have the alien that was on board this ghost ship, and even though they don't have any surviving crew that they can talk to, they at least have a record from where they came from. And as such, the company is banking on the fact that if they came in contact with an alien from this planet, if we go to that planet, will get one too. And so they create a mission that they ask Hicks to participate in. Hicks is the only man alive who's ever fought an alien and lived to tell the tale. They want him on board as a consultant. And he needs focus and agrees to do it. I don't know if he's totally on board with the idea of helping them acquire it as a weapon, but he definitely wants to confront the alien again. And he does not want to do it alone. He breaks into the medical facility where Newt is being held after he learns of her location and smuggles her on board the Benedict, so that when they take off to go find this alien overrun world, he can have someone that understands what's going on, that they can have a certain empathy that no one else on board the mission is really going to get. It's a club, you know. Alien survivors, not a very big club. So a space mission to a planet where the alien has been overrun and established itself as its home world, that seems like enough of a storyline, right? That should be enough for a six-issue comic book. But it's only half of the story. This comic is incredibly ambitious, and we spend a lot of time back on Earth as well. Even though Newt and Hicks are in space, heading towards this destination... Half of the story takes place on Earth, and I don't mind sharing, it's really the best stuff. It's my favorite stuff. When I came into the comic book, I didn't know about it until they were on issue number three. That was the first issue I bought and read. That issue number three begins on Earth with all of these average Joes going about their day and having nightmares. And these nightmares are all weirdly similar. People are having dreams of their mother that's smiling a awful metal teeth smile at them as they're riding a subway car or maybe they're watching television, riding in an airplane. The locations change, but the dream always remains the same. A mother is benevolently smiling as these ugly black xenomorphs are tearing into their safety nets. And what this dream is originating from is an alien queen. This is really the stuff that is newest and freshest that the comic book brings. The Alien Queen is already on Earth, but it is not owned by Weyland-Yutani. It is owned by Weyland-Yutani's rival, 
the people that Weyland Yutani wants to get the alien so they can destroy. <laughs> They're already behind the curve because a rival company has found the escape pod from the ghost ship. And on that ghost ship escape pod was a crew member infected with a facehugger that gave birth to an alien queen. So this company is very happy to be the only one with a nuke, as it were, to think about it in that terms as an arms race. We got the nuke. They have to stop our enemy from getting the nuke. So they set up a uh, ambitious sabotage mission. They send a nihilistic soldier in hot pursuit of the Hicks mission so that they can stop Weyland Yutani from getting the alien at the same time that they are starting to factory farm the alien on Earth. And here's the thing of it. We already saw in the James Cameron movie that the alien queen has a psychic bond with her drones. If you remember Ripley storming into her nest, the queen could make her drones come forth or stand back, could command an alien egg to open at a certain time. She understands her children and communicates with them in a way that is nonverbal. That seems to be translating to weak-minded people on Earth as well. She seems to be turning people in their dreams into new drones so that they can plot her escape. All these people that are dreaming of their mother and the alien are within a 50-mile radius of the lab, and they begin to form a cult of people who worship the alien almost like a deity. There's a televangelist that's taken to the airwaves of public access, and he's gotten a hold of some of this top-secret footage of the alien. He's calling it the Messiah, and he is urging people to follow their dreams and unify with their God by breaking into the lab and allowing themselves to be face-hugged by its alien egg offspring. I really think this stuff is the freshest, most exciting stuff. It's the stuff that feels the most radically different from what's done before. And yet it feels logically in sync. It continues the ideas that Cameron and Scott put forward, but puts its own military spin on it. You know, this is the first movie was about the discovery of the alien. The second one was about looking at fighting military might. This third one is about turning it into military might and how difficult that is. And not surprisingly, the cult eventually does break into the lab, gets the alien spore out there, and begins a chain of events that will end up having the whole Earth overrun with an alien infestation. The problem with this Earth stuff is there's no one here we like anymore. You know, if maybe Newt had stayed behind and come into this cult, that would be one thing. You know, we'd have a character we empathize with finding out this horrific thing. But if Earth is only filled with the people that we meet on it, there are a lot of enterprising opportunist assholes, really. I mean, mostly it's scientists and military people that are greedy and get their comeuppance for it. So I think the problem with the Earth stuff is, even though it's the freshest and most exciting, they don't give us a Ripley. They don't give us a Newt. They don't give us a Hicks. They don't give us any character here on Earth that we want to see survive. We only care about Earth because I presume we're all Earthlings and want our planet to do well, even if populated by jerks. The space stuff, meanwhile, is the least fresh. It feels very familiar. It's following the trajectory that was already done in two movies. You know, you have this crew. They come down onto a planet's surface. They get in over their head. They actually set it up so that there's going to be a nuclear detonation if they don't get off the surface of the planet. I mean, it really follows the formula in a way that feels unimpressive. Newt has fallen in love with one of the grunts, kind of like Sigourney falling for Hicks. But lo and behold, he goes into an alien nest and is ripped in half. Just like Bishop, we see his insides are milky wires, and we have yet another android that we thought was human, and 
you know, I feel like repeating that gag for a third time, it's starting to feel stale. And I don't feel like the soap opera quality of Newt now being in love with an android is nearly as compelling as watching Ripley process her android phobia. I just feel like it was done so much stronger to see it repeated this time to diminishing returns. Well, it's just the least interesting part of the story now. And, you know, here we are on an alien world. You know, what else lives here? What does the alien face on a day-to-day basis? You know, we do see some winged bat creatures that kind of fight for a brief minute. But for the most part, we go to a foreign world and we don't learn much about it. I think that's a real mistake. The story is ambitious to a fault. That said, it's never short of riveting. I am always turning the page. I always want to know what happens next. I think they've done a great job of making a compelling soap opera miniseries out of Alien. I don't know that this would work as a movie. I think it would be very cost prohibitive. And I also think it would throw fans for a loop not to have Sigourney Weaver in the cast list. But the writers do give us one bone towards the end. They they don't give us Ripley, but they do bring back an established character we've seen before. The space jockey actually appears in the last issue of the comic, Newt. Hicks, her android lover, and a few grunts have made it out of an alien nest and they're trying to get off the surface, but they're overrun with aliens. Who comes to their rescue but a space jockey wielding a laser? And Newt seems to have an empathic exchange with it, almost a psychic link, if you were, in which she believes that this creature is like her and wants to exterminate the alien species from the universe. She invites it to follow them back to Earth when they realize that Earth is being overrun with aliens, only to be disappointed that the space jockey does not want to stop the alien infestation of Earth. It wants the aliens to kill all the humans, and then it's going to terraform the planet so that it can have our resources for its own. I'm not sure. We don't really understand the space jockey. There's not many more answers given here than were already implicit in the Ridley Scott original. Hopefully Prometheus makes this much more of an understandable character. It was nice to see him. It was nice to see him do a little battle. And I do think it's ironic that the enemy of our enemy is not our friend in this case. That just because we both hate the alien doesn't make us partners in all of this. It's, again, a very ambitious storyline. Bringing the space jockey in is both a nice recall and a struggling overreach for What are they going to do now? Like, will Newt and Hicks have to blast their way against the space jockey? They don't. This issue pretty much comes to a close at this moment. Earth is overrun. The aliens appear to have won. But they are alive and in space with no home to return to. Kind of bleak, actually. I mean, when you think about it, at least the Cameron movie or the scott movie you know they had each other they people got away they escaped but here all of earth seems to have fallen there doesn't seem to be a way really to rescue it for most of the population so if in no other way it sort of mirrors the religious apocalyptic vibe of the david fincher movie even though it's a much more aliens reminiscent actiony storyline so should you read it Definitely. I think that this is a very good comic book. Like I said, I don't know that it would have made a good movie, but I definitely feel like if you're a fan of the first two movies, and particularly if you're not a fan of the third movie, you might really enjoy taking the journey and seeing what might have been for Newt and Hicks. It's interesting to see the world outside of the eyes of Ripley, even though I missed her in the storyline. 
and they really tried to draw Newt so that she looked like Sigourney Weaver and acted like Ripley. They tried to make her the surrogate for the Ripley character. I feel like it is a neat thing to see what else is going on in the world and who what other characters do and how they process this alien. It's neat to see it as an expansive experience, something that only a comic book or a novel could do, something that just wouldn't get the green light in the movies. So however you want to experience it, both as the original six-issue run, or as the collected Alien Outbreak, or as the novelization Alien Earth Hive, I definitely recommend you check it out if you want to see Earth in the future get its butt handed to them. Though I suspect things may change as we get into the sequels. Next week, it's Nightmare Alley. This was the second Dark Horse miniseries done to response to the success, done in color. Going to be a new experience. I collected that one as well. I'll share my thoughts next week on that. Meanwhile, if you're a donor, please join me for the official sequel to James Cameron's Aliens, David Fincher's Alien 3. We'll be covering that one, Brock, Arnie, and I, on Friday. The donations are $10 or more, and I definitely feel like this is our strongest series I've ever been a part of, and certainly an all-time classic for me. I never tire of talking with aliens, and I hope you keep joining me and keep reading next week, Alien Nightmare Alley. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at potsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved.